Today is November 10th, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's podcast. Today we're talking to Rusty Gage. Rusty is professor of the Laboratory of Genetics at the Salk Institute and the John Adler Chair for Research on Age-Related Degenerative Neurodegenerative Diseases. Did I get that right? That's right. Uh, Rusty is responsible for a large part of what we currently know about the ability of neurons in the adult to change their shape for circuits to restructure their connections and adapt to damage, and even for how new neurons can be created and integrated into existing circuits in the adult. And his work has been very influential also in informing our current ideas about the possibility of adding new cells to neural circuits, for example, as potential treatments for neurodegenerative disease. Hi, Rusty. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. Great to have you. So uh, around the room, uh, Jacqueline Shea, say hi. hi. And uh, Michael Forey. Hello. Alfonso Apicella. Hi. Annie Lynn. Hi. Gary Galfall. Hello. Chris Rhodes. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So, Rusty, just to get us started, how about telling us the story behind the science a little bit? How did we come to realize that neurons could grow new axonal projections to, to innervate neurons that have been denervated by a lesion, or even to some extent, regrow their connections after their own axons have been cut? Well, there are, I don't know exactly when the first experiment or observation was made, but there are a couple really good examples of serendipity that often drives science uh, that I like to talk, think about and I know something about when they first uh, made observations about uh, sprouting. I think one of the most convincing early cases was uh, Powell and Raisman uh, looking in the in the septum, and what they found with a unilateral fornix lesion was that there was some sprouting of uh, septal fibers into denervated terminal regions, and it was really um, so beautifully. Exemplified because it was was shown in a time course with uh, at the electron microscopic level, where there was an ectopic synapse being formed, one that was not normally there in, in a normal situation. Uh, there were some t- attempts to try to understand some functional aspects of it, but it wasn't really uh, fully elaborated. Another one I like was one in Sweden where they had developed this catecholamine histofluorescence technique to visualize dopamine throughout the central nervous system. And people were skeptical as to whether or not this was actually a, a way of tracing dopaminergic or aminergic fibers. So the idea was that if, if they really were catecholines coming, this was marking catecholines coming from the substantia nigrosae to the striatum or through the, uh, the midbrain to the forebrain, if they made a cut, they should see a depletion of uh, catecholamine staining in the more rostral portions. So they did the experiment, and they looked quickly after the cut, and it was still there, because the residual terminals hadn't degenerated yet, so they, they stayed. Uh, but as they did a time course, what they observed was that not only did it decrease in the um, 
in the rostral portions, but there was um, over time increasing amounts of aberrant fluorescence that was forming out from the site of the cut. And in partial cuts, they actually got growth all the way back in part to the striatal area, showing and having, a, for the first time, a really ongoing assay to watch this catecholamine aminergic sprouting. If you have time, I'll tell you another story that I, I okay. actually like a lot, This because this gets into the transplantation era, where people were... Um, again, trying to prove that there was really a sprouting response. And so uh, Ulf Stanevi and a, and a wonderful uh, electron microscopist from Denmark at the time, I think this was probably in the 70, late 70s, again, trying to see if there was really sprouting of these catecholamine axons. So they took a, a retina and they transplanted it into the cavity where the injury was. And what they observed was that the growing axons from aminergic axons grew into this denervated, clearly denervated, transparent uh, retinal transplant. And then they did electron microscopy showing that, in fact, the regenerating axons had, in fact, grown into this barren area with new terminals. It was really a beautiful example that cut axons can actually grow and innervate an area. So these were... So the early days that that uh, uh, pushed back the skepticism on the structural plasticity was possible in the central nervous system. That was a clear violation of what everybody knew. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it was. It was. I it can't go much. You can't. I should say that uh, the sprouting story, the reactive sprouting story, we think of it. That means when growing synapses go into the wrong location was really exploited and demonstrated quite uh, severely in the hippocampus where <clears throat> the interrandal cortex comes into the outer layers of the dentate gyrus in the molecular layer of the dentate gyrus. And there's also a cholinergic input that comes into the medial portion of the granule cell dendritic arborization. But the interrandal is into the mid middle and the lateral portion. And so you would cut the middle and lateral portion this wonderful expansion of the cholinergic input occurred. And you can see this morphologically, chemically, uh, histochemically. It was, it was demonstrated by a lot of really good scientists. This is the early days when Carl Kottman and, and Gary Lynch, but also um, some wonderful Norwegian uh, experimenters led by Storm Matisse, Jan Storm Matisse, who showed this all biochemically, showing that it actually was increasing there. It was another good example and it, it was really these paradigms of plasticity where schools grew up uh, to uh, begin breaking down this barrier. So one of the tricks in both of those two examples was having a good histochemical method for seeing that neurons that were not damaged. Because all of the axonal tracing techniques at that time were based on killing neurons to see their axons. And so you couldn't yeah. see them regrow because they were dead. That's right. I think that's a really important point, is that these reactive sprouting responses were from intact cells, and they were going aberrantly into another location. And that really proved the case that it could happen. The, the next phase of this was all trying to figure out if it was functional, physiologically, what was its meaning? Was this just an aberration of, the, of, a, of a system trying to repair itself, or was there really an outcome that resulted in functional restoration? And I think we're still living with that a little bit now. So there was a, some speculation that could actually be detrimental. 
that's frowning to happen. Absolutely. I think the first, uh, oftentimes when you think about uh, breaking down dogma, people say, well, that just can't happen. And then finally, you know, say eventually enough people replicate it so it does happen. Well, it happens, but it's either detrimental or it's meaningless or it's an artifact. And there's this brief moment in time where it happens and it's important and it's interesting. And then it goes into the final phase, which is it happened. Of course, everybody knows it. So what's new there? So I thought the phase after that was it happened and I discovered it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Again. <laughs> So do you think, of course, these are mostly in the presence of damage. Yeah. So do you think that, I know one of the things you've worked on are the, the biochemical factors that determine when cells do this and how much. And, yeah. and is there evidence that, that our brains are rewiring like that all the time? Are those same uh, mechanisms working, same factors active and working to redraw our brain connections all the time? I think that um, there, one way to think about it is that as we live, there are probably micro damages that are happening all the time or micro stimuli that are happening all the time that the, the same mechanisms are responding at a micro level to reorganize and reshape in response to these challenges that we live and experience throughout life. But, you know, an example that I like a lot that clearly shows. Um, probably the biggest form of neuronal plasticity in the adult nervous system is this idea of adult neurogenesis, where new neurons uh, can be born. And it was a it was a pretty much of a, uh, a problem for people to digest for a while because how is it that in a in a in an adult brain a new neuron could divide perhaps and make a new neuron? Was that what's going on? And if we did that, that's got to be bad news for the intricate circuitry of the brain. But it, it turns out that this is um, restricted to only some certain areas of the brain. And it's not that a mature neuron divides, but rather that, surprisingly, there are very primitive cells, or we call stem cells, that exist within certain areas of the brain. And it's those stem cells that self-renew and can give rise to new neurons that provides this birth of new neurons. And as far as we can tell, uh, and the evidence is pretty strong, that this is an ongoing process, that there are existing stem cells, that they can divide, and they can give rise to progenitor cells that can give rise to fully functional whole new neurons with dendrites and axons that send out and make contact with their targets and receive inputs from their um, receiving cells and that they're functional and they integrate and generate action potentials and and probably what's most interesting about this is it's not it doesn't seem to be an injury induced event because experience like um, enrichment or say complexity in an environment has an impact on the survival and integration of the cells and something as simple as physical movement in the environment can stimulate the proliferation of these cells um, and there's lots of theories about why that is so, but more importantly, there are mechanisms now that show that factors such as IGF-1 or IGF-2 circulating the blood as a function of exercise or elevated levels of serotonin from the dorsal raphae and hippocampus 
can stimulate the 5-HT1A receptor and stimulate proliferation of the cell. So there's actually mechanisms for how the behavioral input affects the CNS that can affect the activity. So that's directly acting on neurogenesis, but I'm just wondering about axonal growth. So if there's a new dentate gyrus cell, and it yep. sends its axon to CA3 and makes a synapse, then why couldn't I cut all the axons of the existing dentate gyrus cells and, and have all the mechanisms be in place for them to regrow their axonal connections to CA3? So that's actually a really good question, and I don't think that anybody's ever done that experiment in the dentate gyrus, but what you highlight there is that in the dentate gyrus, in the hilus where the axons come out and move along the polymorphic area to the terminal regions of the dendrites of the CA3 is rich with developmental factors like laminin and polysilated incam. So it's, a, it's an embryonic region that's rich with all the factors necessary for that to occur. And if you look at that complement of developmental factors, you don't find it anywhere else in the brain except in the rostral migratory stream which is where the subventricular cells migrate out to the olfactory pole. So maybe they would. Maybe that particular uh, uh, projection is privileged regeneratively. And if, and if maybe with your thought, continuing your thought, it's not so much trying to change the nature of the cell itself, the properties of the granule neuron, but changing the environment so that other cells and other, other environments can, can uh, send out their axons. So that is a... A feature that's that uh, you know is, is being highlighted now. For example, one of the cell types that is important for this is, they're called astrocytes, and they help. There are astrocytes that are different in different parts of the brain, and the astrocytes in this region of the dentate gyrus are unique in their ability to make and secrete certain molecules that are important for axonal elongation. And if you look at those factors in other regions, like the spinal cord, it doesn't, they don't exist. So if we can, you know, strategically, uh, it's not just about the cells and the regenerating axon, it's about the environment as well, and providing a rich environment for that to occur. Yeah, so, so just, you mentioned uh, the two places where adult neurogenesis occurs, the hippocampus um, and the uh, subventricular zone. Now, <clears throat> Have we completely exhausted other areas of the CNS, or is it just because, uh, you know, um, like most scientists, we're just following the path of least resistance? Everyone's studying those two areas because those are the two most popular places. But <clears throat> the question is, if if those are the only two places, why are they restricted to those two mm -hmm. places and not other? functional areas of the brain and, and spinal cord. Right, right. I think that that's a... There, in, embedded in there is a practical question and a philosophical question. I'll answer the, the practical question. I think uh, I... The evidence supports the fact that there may be other areas in the brain that can permit adult neurogenesis to occur. So there's some regions in the hypothalamus that, that people have have shown that some neurogenic-like activity can occur there. Um, there's other evidence that um, in response to injury in the striatum, that the subventricular zone cells that normally go to the olfactory bulb can branch, branch off and follow a cytokine-related response 
and differentiate at least into double cortin positive cells. They don't become mature neurons, but they have this capacity to at least differentiate from partial, partially related cells. So, um, and other people have reported the potential, you know, reported one-offs of neurogenesis in, in other regions. I think the, the focus on subventricular vintage iris is in part because they're reliable and everybody can see it. It's a high school experiment now. You, you can give BRDU and you can see the labeled cells in, in the area. The other situations, I'm, I'm not against their being there. I just There may be special circumstances, there may be special species that have it. So for example, the most recent report is that while subventricular zone and olfactory generated neurons is present in most species, certainly in quadrupeds, in bipole and bipeds, it's very little neurogenesis in the olfactory bulb. Even in humans, apparently, there's not any uh, postnatal. So there's a species difference. There's you know activity dependent differences that, that are there. Uh, okay, so that's the, that's the practical part. So why would there be? Was the other? Well, so the, the question is, um, maybe let me extend this. If it is the uh, subventricular zone and uh, the hippocampus and maybe the hypothalamus, is there a common evolutionary function for why these, let's say, three structures would require neurogenesis? Is olfaction very important? Um, for evolution, whether it's a uh, uh, mating behavior, uh, eating, and is that related to our ability to um, identify uh, spatial and temporal things related to olfaction? Mm -hmm. And somehow uh, this basic function has been, um, I guess, recruited by other more modern, let's say, uh, related functions. So is there a, a common function that you can think about that? Right. Uh, so I can speak a little bit to the hippocampus. Um, it seems to be that neurogenesis occurs in the dentate gyrus of, of all species, all mammalian species that we can see so far, and it retains pretty much the same characteristics with regard to transcription factors and morphological features. Timing is a little bit different. But it's in an area called the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is a structure we know that's important for the formation of new memories, if not also for the recall of past memories, or at least in the, um, the reassociation of a previous event, the recall and the association of that recall into some context. So the hippocampus seems to be important for both of those events. Um, we don't know for sure um, everything about what they, what these new neurons or why these new neurons are in there, but there are three emerging ideas about uh, their role. And part of this is developed by computational modeling, which is now being tested empirically and experimentally in the dish, in living animals, in humans even. And one of the ideas is that uh, historically the dentate is a highly dense structure very tightly packed with neurons, five times as higher density than the input from the neuronal cortex and for the CA3. So it's ideal, what Marr had early suggested, this is an ideal structure for what's called uh, orthogonalization or sparsification, or what's come to be called uh, 
pattern separation, where uh, information can be comes in from the environmental cortex, which is an aggregate of information from sensory, auditory, previous experiences, and stretched out on this very dense population, sparsified. And then uh, that sparsification allows for, and then re-aggregation again into the CA3 allows for a very clear separation of closely related of closely related events. So instead of pattern completion, which would make things all look the same, the dentate is very much about trying to parse out the small differences that exist between between two uh, events. If you had the dentate alone, you would see two events and you'd see their their differences, and you'd be able to see clearly how things are different from each other. But clearly, the part that we believe that the new neurons play in this is integration. They are, uh, during the period of time they develop, they're hyper-excitable, so they are more like CA1 neurons than dentate gyrus neurons, and they fire very rapidly to everything (laughs) that comes into the environment. So you have the mature neurons that are very sparse, they're highly inhibited, so they don't fire very much, and you have built into this a small population of highly active neurons that uh, contribute an integrating amount of information to the sparsity, and that aggregate of separation integration then comes to the CA3. And what we believe that means is that it these cells, these hyperexcitable cells, are helping to helping the dentate, which is separating, to see the relationship between the two things. So in the end, the experimental evidence in animals shows that the dentate gyrus, these new, new, newborn neurons in the dentate gyrus, help an organism to tell the difference between two stimuli that are very closely related to each other. They're not important for telling things that are very different. You don't need them. The dentate's terrific at that, and probably the cortex is pretty good at that, too. But because of their integrator capacity, they can do this. Now, the, the second thing it's, it's kind of refining new information. It, it's, it's called re- resolution. Another way is that refinement or resolution is another interpretation of this, and I think resolution is part of it. Um, another way to describe it, and we're stuck in terms a lot of times, but I think we're, we're communicating this idea that it's really important in making the distinction between events that are closely related in time, in, mo- in motion, and, and in space. So in all three dimensions, uh, Evidence is coming from different sources that are, that are supporting this idea. Now, once this, after about six to eight weeks, these immature cells that are hyperexcitable become mature. And again, the growing evidence is that they, in, during that period of time, they, they encode information about things that happened during that period. And if you, you tag them in some way, um, molecularly, however, uh, and then come back three months later after they become uh, mature, and you expose them to an environment that they experienced while they were young, they are more likely to respond to that previous environment than other cells that were born at different times. So we think of this as a generalization phenomenon and uh, long-term coding. And this gets finally to your question, I think, of why would you need to have cells coming into the circuit all the time? 
we're living over a period of uh, hopefully 80 or 90 years, not generating a lot of new cells, and what this provides is a mechanism for acquiring new information and encoding selectively that information, and then having some calendar relationship to it, so that not only do you have a way of storing new information about the environment, but they're coded in a way that allows for a temporal coding. So, that so this coding that you're saying, is this a, a <clears throat> the modern terminology is that uh, epigenetic coding? Is there some information that's conveyed upon the new neuron that is maintained until it's an adult? Yeah, you know, this is, I certainly don't know that, but that is exactly what I personally would like to uh, pursue with the new single cell technology where we can tag the cells at different times and see whether or not we can see what what does an engram look like? What does a, a coded cell that has been, how is it different how, from a cell that had this information or not? I'm not sure what that's going to look like. I think epigenetics is probably the best bet, but that's a pretty broad field and, um, and then how we would actually we're trying. And I, I think, but you're right, that's that's where we want to go. That's the sort of thing where there would be a molecular signature that would be there. I mean, this is, uh, it's not to say, and just because sometimes these hypotheses come at odds with the current idea of systems biology where it's all in the circuit. And I'm not saying that the information is also not present in the circuit and that the synapses the strength and loss of synapses is not coding for important information as well, but I would argue that it's worth looking into these molecular molecular features as perhaps an underlying mechanism for even the weighting that we see in the synaptic areas. So if, if my brain can make some new neurons somewhere, yeah. then... Why couldn't I just take some neurons and inject them into my brain? Can we do that? I mean, we sort of can, and they yeah. will sort of take, right. at least some of the time. Yeah. What, what's the hope for, for doing useful things that way? Well, I think if we just take it from where we've just spoken now, I think if, if you were to propose that you're going to do this and you're going to add a memory, add memories that you somehow acquired someplace else and add them to your brain, that's probably not anything that's going to happen anytime soon because you need to transplant the cells at an early enough stage where they um, have to develop in the brain itself. So add memory capacity. Yeah, you, that's exactly right. You could. That's a, that's a better theory of adding a capacity for a theory. Or... Maybe the function of the neurons is, it, you're not getting the full complement of all the function of the neurons, but some feature that neurons have that might be useful. And I'll take one close to your heart, um, dopamine neurons, and in a disease like Parkinson's disease, where at least part of the defect is from the death of dopamine neurons that project to the striatum, other places too, but let's say to the striatum, and some of the, and this loss of dopaminergic neurons means a loss of dopamine being released in its target areas. And the symptoms in the patients include a, um, 
bit of ataxia, inability to initiate motions, all things that have a quasi-relationship to dopamine function. And remarkably, uh, diffuse pills that can stimulate the dopamine receptors will ameliorate some of the symptoms, not perfectly, but it, it, it works a little bit. So that raised, but you have to take the pills all the time, you have to moderate the doses. So that generated the idea of taking, say, fetal dopaminergic neurons and transplanting them not into the place where the cells are, but in the, in the target where the cell where the receptors are. So that they could sort of chronically dump out ill dopamine. It wasn't for dopamine. And it's not such a bad idea because when you're taking the pill, you're not really, you know, regulating something in a fashioned way. And it certainly works remarkably well in rodents. You can deplete dopamine on one side of the brain or kill the dopamine neurons on one side of the brain. The animals have this asymmetric rotation in response to a drug that stimulates the receptors, the hyper-responsive receptors. If you transplant fetal tissue in there, by six weeks, you can pretty much block that asymmetrically stimulated rotation. In and this has been replicated hundreds of times, so it really, it really does work. And that led to some clinical trials that have been less than perfect in their outcome, working in some hands and not working in other hands. But I think it has in part to do with who's doing it and what's the source of the cells. So the more recent uh, development of um, ways to make purified and, let's say, uh, well-characterized cells of dopaminergic early origin as a, as a common source implanted into the, the, uh, the striatum of, of Parkinson patients is now being re-examined by three groups around the world who are trying to do this in different iterations. Um, and it, it's, it's a fairly interesting experiment because in Europe, in the United States, and in Japan, large groups have gotten together to do this experiment in Parkinson patients with purified populations, slightly different ways in which they're doing it, but they're smart people and they're doing a good job, and they're communicating with each other, these different groups in different countries, sharing protocols, they're going to share data, and sort of pick the patients in a way that's smart. So I think this is a good, here's a, this is an example of where people are going to try to do this. Another one is in uh, retinal degeneration, where they're trying to put retinal cells back. And uh, that's another example where it might be, a, a, might, might be easier because you can monitor this optically. You can see the graph, whereas when, when the graph is in the brain, you don't see it so well. But uh, So I think that in this case, we're not asking the cells to carry new information about the environment. We're asking them to do something relatively simple. Um, and actually, I'm not sure how much integration they need to have. Maybe they can just be a pump dumping it out at some level in the, in the case of Parkinson's disease. So maybe, you know, as we move our way through the cellular replacement strategies, um, you know, we call it low-hanging low fruit would be it's turning out to be not so easy as we thought, but at least it has a, a strategy and you can make an argument and, and different groups are, are following along the same path. Moving into more complicated 
strategy of augmenting memory or uh, replacing some cognitive function that requires a, 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 a clear organization of the structural feature may be way off. We'd need to be able to reconstruct the regeneratively privileged environment of the mossy fibers. Right, and we'd have to know more about it, its normal function in order to reconstruct it accurately. In this case, we just want to get dopamine in there. But if we, in order, for example, in our case, we're talking about this ability to make distinctions between events that are closely associated with each other, I think we need to, we would need to um, uh, know more about the, 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 the system's organization. If, if our working hypothesis is true and that these young cells and their maturation to the circuit is important for matching the integration with the separation, one could imagine um, an aging setting supplementing new stem cells into the iris as a way of augmenting the capacity to pattern separation over time. It is true that with age, there's a dramatic drop in neurogenesis in the hippocampus that goes along with uh, an age-related decline in the capacity to make these fine distinctions in our environment. Uh, so maybe that's a... It's another piece of low-hanging fruit, maybe. Well, I don't know, maybe I, a little higher. <laughs> a little higher, not so low-hanging, but one that we think about anyway. Okay, well, thank you very much, SCH. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.